five, seven years from now, we're not going to be using the same computers or the same devices that we use today. In fact, I would venture to say that the phone that is in your pocket right now that we use every single day won't leave home without powers the podcasts and the music in our cars. It, it, we use it for to answer our emails when we're, we're on the road. The first thing I pick up when I get up, that's not going to be anywhere near the same five years from now. It's going to be completely different. And there's going to be completely different ways to interact with it, completely different ways to manipulate data on it. Welcome to Create New Futures, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your business. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with David Harding. David is an executive with over 25 years of technology leadership experience. He is currently the Chief Technology Officer for Imageware Systems, a software-as-a-service company. As CTO, he transformed Imageware from a traditional software company into a leading cloud and software-as-a-service provider with services and products that are licensed and resold by some of the world's largest corporations. He's a noted expert in the field of biometric, identity management, and enterprise security. A prolific inventor, he holds multiple patents with over a dozen pending. I have initially met David on one of my many flights, and we have enjoyed a robust and far-ranging conversation. So on this Create New Future episode, we have an opportunity to pick up our conversation. David, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. And thank you for that very nice introduction. Uh, let me dive right in and ask you first, what are you working on right now within your portfolio of responsibilities? Wow, that's a, uh, that's a, that's a big question. Working on a number of new products, new features, uh, always, always growing. But as a cybersecurity company, uh, it's really always about staying ahead. You know, cybersecurity is a very real issue. Uh, data breaches are up. Uh, networks are at risk. Companies are uh, struggling with uh, how to secure their networks, how to secure their resources, how to identify their users and their customers. And that's where we come in. We, um, we build biometric software for identifying and authenticating users and even devices. So everything from desktops, laptops, tablets, smartphones, even IoT. I have an incredibly talented team and we recently designed and released a, a series of new products uh, for biometrically securing corporate networks and cloud resources. And uh, I'm also working on several new patents, uh, particularly around uh, blockchain and something known as multi-factor identity authentication for enterprise cybersecurity. So, so much to rethread there in a few minutes. But first, of all the things you do, of all the challenges you engage with, what excites you, what energizes you the most and why? It's innovation. It's problem solving. Um, as I said, I have an incredibly talented team. Uh, that work uh, together with me, and they're all over the world. Uh, they're creative, opinionated, passionate, dedicated, and they challenge me and they challenge each other every day. And being able to take a team like that and meet customer challenges and lead vision, uh, solve problems, that's what I love most about my work. You know, software is an interesting sell. Uh, as, as with any product, uh, you, it really has to have a purpose. Uh, someone once told me, a venture capitalist once told me, I don't invest in software, I invest in aspirin. And, and I was curious as to what he meant by that. He said, you know, companies only spend money on things if it'll solve a pain that they're experiencing right now. And when it comes to technology, people do pay for aspirin. They pay for solutions to things that are painful enough to get the checkbook out write a check to make that, that pain go away. For us, uh, we take away the problem of the wrong people getting into the, wrong, into the network and doing very, very bad things like stealing personal information. For me, I love finding those pain points and working with other innovative people who are also problem solvers to create those unique ways 
to make that pain go away. And it's extremely rewarding. And uh, we have a lot of fun doing it. I mean, professionally speaking, constantly living in that place where ideas and, and oftentimes they're, they start out as absolutely crazy ideas are turned into real and tangible solutions to problems that, that people are facing. And that's the most exciting job I can imagine. And I happen to have that job. <laughs> Very nice. Let's just get grounded a bit in the, the terminology. When we say biometrics, what, what do we mean? And what is the distinction between biometrics and identity management? That's a great question. Um, I like to say that biometrics are those unique characteristics that we all have. Um, some are behavioral, some are physical. And what we do is we take those characteristics and we apply them in a way that can be an incredibly accurate authenticator of someone's identity. We've been, we've been familiar with biometrics, each and every one of us, for many years. I mean, we're all used to the concept of a fingerprint. Now that, you know, we have fingerprints on our phones, we use them every day. In fact, you know, using fingerprint as an identifier has been done in law enforcement for over 100 years. You know, there are so many other biometric modalities that can be used. Uh, when we say modality, what we're talking about are those, those characteristics like face, the, the, the picture of your face, the actual geometry of your facial features, your voice. Um, the iris in your eye, the way you walk, uh, it's called a gait. Uh, another one we're very familiar with, thanks to law enforcement uh, programs, is uh, DNA. So biometrics is, the, is taking those characteristics and building solutions to either identify or authenticate an identity. Now, identity management is a much larger topic, and it really depends on the application. Biometrics is part of the topic of identity management, but it's really only a piece. Identity management is about creating a, a dossier about an individual. And that dossier is relevant to the application of that data. So for example, the dossier that you have for law enforcement, whether uh, you are a law-abiding citizen or a criminal, is very different than a dossier for your credit use or your banking or your health care and your health care records. Identity management is that overarching topic that covers all of that. And biometrics fits into that to make sure that the right person is attached to the right identity. So the general public would typically believe that to any solution that you develop, somebody will develop another way to go around that and that there isn't any system that is absolutely safe and, and secure. Uh, do you disagree or, or would you restate that assumption? No, I absolutely agree. In fact, that's what makes uh, the cybersecurity business so interesting is it's, it's always staying one step ahead or trying to stay one step ahead. I mean, uh, coming back to data breaches, I mean, um, the, the 81% of data breaches today uh, occur because of a, a compromised password. Your identity is tied to your username and your password when you log in at work or when you log into the website for your bank. Or, you know, when you go to log into your uh, healthcare provider, that is your identity management. That's your window in and that's your access. But that's the easiest thing to compromise. So biometrics is able to backfill and, and, and provide a, a very secure way to identify you. Can it be, can it be a spoof? Well, some modalities are easier than others. I mean, you know, the, the Computer Chaos Club was able to spoof a fingerprint within a few hours of the original iPhone with fingerprint with a fingerprint reader on it being released. But then there are all those techniques that we use to keep that from happening. For example, uh, anti-spoofing techniques when you take a picture of your face, say, uh, forcing you to do certain things that uh, only uh, you would do at that moment when asked to do, such as to bring the phone closer and detect differences in, in uh, your skin variation, for example. So again, that's where that innovation comes into play and in really understanding the problem and then finding those solutions to it, those ideas that can address those issues. So who are some of the large customers and organizations that use your solutions and services? Well, it's really broken into two sectors, the public and the private. I mean, if you look at the public sector, uh, the public sector, like your federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies, have been involved in identity management for as long as such agencies have existed. Um, I'm sure we've all heard of uh, how, you know, you get fingerprinted if you're arrested, for example. And these governments have 
national identity in biometric programs to be able to keep track of criminals, match fingerprints and faces, the mugshots, also track all the other information for that user. That's that's part of that dossier I talked about, you know, like where they've lived, what aliases they've used, their their conviction record, any charges that have been filed and things like that. But, well, I, I imagine they also have my fingerprints anytime I come through, uh, um, you know, immigration and and I go through the fast lane that that also works. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and again, that's, that's, that's where it gets kind of gray between, uh, the, the government and commercial use because we're starting to see some commercial, uh, companies providing those solutions as a service and then the government's consuming those services. So yeah, I mean, you and I both have probably gone through a number of background checks and, and also, you know, with, with, uh, registered traveler programs provided our fingerprints. So we're actually in the system, so to speak, when it comes right. to that. Right. You know, you look at you look at identity management, though, when you get into the private sector, when you get into the consumer sector, it's huge. Um, that's expanded greatly, predominantly because of social usage and, and uh, banking. Um, and in fact, those databases are even more sophisticated and sizable. A good example is Facebook. We all think of them as a, a social media website. I will tell you they're an identity management company. Hmm. Their social media platform collects an unbelievable amount of information, not just from their own website and how you use it, but other websites you visit. They even track your offline purchasing. So it's multiple sources they collect this information. They've created incredibly accurate dossiers of people who not only use their platform, they track people who don't. And that's become quite an issue, especially uh, internationally. If you look at new standards uh, that are that are throughout Europe and now being imposed by Europe onto the rest of the world, like GDPR, where there is privacy for a person's information or privacy requirements for a person's information. But there are other examples, too. I mean, if you look at uh, the service bureaus like TransUnion, Experian and Equifax, we think of them as, you know, places that banks go to or your your when you go to get a car loan or home loan. Your, your credit report comes from those agencies. In fact, they're identity management companies. Hmm. They have more information about us than just our credit histories. And to prove that point, if you've ever gone to like a bank website and tried to confirm your identity through what they call knowledge-based authentication or KBA, you get asked questions like, you know, what's your mother's maiden name? Which of the following streets have you lived on? All that information comes from the service bureaus and they provide that as a service to the banks. And that's why, for example, the data breach uh, that happened at Equifax is considered the most catastrophic data breach in modern history because the amount of personal information that was exposed was far greater than any other data breach in history. So you're talking social security numbers. You're talking, uh, you know, where you not only where you've lived, but for how long and how much you've made uh, from salary. It's, uh, it's, it's an incredible amount of information that's now in the wild. Indeed, I've always found the the uh, riddles of uh, in which addresses have you lived in the past to be the most difficult to solve. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you you have also spoken of blockchain as as a space you you have developed uh, and and working into now. How would you, for people that have so far not been able to wrap their mind around what the blockchain technology is, how do you explain that at, at a simplistic level? Well, actually, blockchain itself is somewhat at a high level simplistic. It's a database. It's an, it's what's known as an immutable database. Um, and like any database, it has its application. I mean, a, a database is really designed to store data, store information. And most of the databases that we work with are, you know, think about like how a, 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 a typical company would use a database. They keep a database of their customers, for example. And they keep track of invoices and they put the information of, of the, about the invoice, the line items, you know, when it's due. All that information goes in the database. But those types of databases are really for query and update purposes. Uh, blockchain's not about update in the typical sense. It's about adding new records. It's a ledger and it's distributed. And, and by being distributed, it all has to match in each of the locations that that data goes, which is why uh, it's called a blockchain. It's a chain of data blocks. And those data blocks, as they're distributed and replicated, all have to match. So what that means is when something goes in the blockchain, it's immutable. It can't be updated. And 
you know, the other thing that blockchain has, which is very, very cool, is the encryption to keep track, to keep the identity anonymous. Um, some of the patent work that I've been working on around blockchain is specific to being able to authenticate a transaction on an account that, in fact, the person who holds that account did authenticate the transaction. In fact, all parties involved authenticated the transaction without exposing the identity of who authenticated it. And part of the idea is that this is a decentralized, distributed exactly. uh, database. And, and so what, what is your intuition or prediction? If, if you dare predict, uh, are we going to see this technology essentially exploding in, in all sorts of applications and, and spaces because of that driver to empower and decentralize power? Yeah, I would say that's true. But as with all things, I mean, technology, uh, you know, every time a new technology comes out, it's advertised as the cure-all for all of our ills. <laughs> and, in, and in fact, it's, it, it has very specific and very good application and a number of applications. Is it going to replace, you know, Oracle and SQL Server and your typical traditional databases or your, you know, your uh, JSON-style databases like MongoDB? Absolutely not. It may take applications that were being used in those databases and and garner that business because it's it's more appropriate and that that's really how it's going to work i mean you're looking at, at at some of the largest platform as a service companies in the world providing blockchain services i think that's great uh, personally i think blockchain is fantastic um but uh is it is it the thing that's going to you know completely change the way we look at data storage forever in all cases absolutely not there are many companies, David, that attempted over the last 10 years to transition into software as a service model. Why is it difficult and what are the challenges? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, one, of the, one of the most difficult aspects is dealing with multiple customers, multiple tenants, and being able to scale to support them. Cloud computing really changed everything when it came to the cost associated with being able to deploy large applications. But what it also did is it required that a lot of the applications that people were using, that they installed what we call on-prem or on-premises, basically within their network and behind their firewalls. It took an architectural change to the software because you have to support a lot of customers if you're going to make money. For example, when we took our biometrics business and we put it into a software as a service model, we had to account for different requirements than when we were installing it, say, for a specific government agency like the Veterans Administration or, or for the Canadian TSA or for any of the other government and law enforcement agencies that we support or for even some of our consumer-oriented uh, customers. Uh, where they were installing that software local and they had basically a cap. They were the only customer using that data and they weren't going to exceed X number of, you know, identities, for example, that they were going to manage. When you get into software as a service, you know, it's kind of an unlimited field out there. It's a, it's a greenfield opportunity for your business to go and, and garner customers. But you also have to be able to deal with the security issues associated with that. You also have to be able to deal with the scale. Um, in my world, for example, it's one thing to support maybe, you know, a couple hundred thousand identities or even, uh, you know, upwards of a million identities. In a software as a service model, you could have to support hundreds of millions of identities. And when we knew that going in, we architected our solution from the ground up to support that. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that people have as they move into the SaaS model is being able to truly understand the security the transactional scalability, and uh, being able to work with multiple tenants and customers and, and be able to provide uh, protection of their data. Just double-click for me, transactional scalability. What, what, are, what, are, the, <laughs> what are the elements that, that would make that uh, practical and operational? Well, uh, to give you an example, we provide uh, identity authentication as a service. So using our, our software, you could use your face or your voice or your fingerprint to log into your computer. And you can do it through your mobile device or you could do it through your desktop. When you have, say, half a million people doing it at exactly the same time, that's what we mean by transactional scalability. That transaction of I'm authenticating your identity 
And let's say, uh, let's say if I'm identifying you with your voice, but I'm also logging in and I'm using my face and someone else is using a picture of their handprint or someone else is using a fingerprint. Being able to support a few people doing it at the same time is one thing. Being able to support hundreds of thousands or even millions to tens of millions of people at the same time. That's what we mean by transactional scalability. Let's trace to the beginning of your journey. And let me ask you, what inspired you when you were growing up? I will later be interested to explore how whatever it was led you to what you do now. But when you reflect back to your upbringing, what were the, the sources of inspiration that, that captured you? One of the things that's absolutely true in software engineering is a lot of software engineers are into music. And I started in software engineering. And uh, the thing that inspired me first before computers um, was music. I've been a musician my whole life. I play and listen to music every day. I have musical instruments in my office um, that I play when I'm sitting and thinking and mulling over ideas or, or trying to come up with new innovations. Music inspires me. As a youth, I found the idea, the dynamic of a band, a group of people, a team of individuals working together to create a sound that could have an emotional response in you, make you feel energized, sad, thoughtful, happy. That's amazing. So um, at a very young age, I learned to play several instruments. I'm still learning. I learned how to compose music using music theory. Uh, I still compose. And I listen to just a, a, a wide range of different types of music, uh, everything from classical to jazz to rock, even my personal favorite, which is punk. Um, but uh, as I got older, um, I got into computers. I got into software engineering. And as it turns out, um, and, you know, this has actually been proven through various, you know, medical means like CAT scans, the part of your brain that you use to write and play music is the same part of the brain you use for analytical processing. So math and software for me were an easy fit because I'd really been exercising that part of my brain, I think, uh, quite a bit. And again, that's a, that's a, uh, that's a common story. Um, so what, what are the other, if you try to reverse engineer some of the, the elements of working or playing with a band and, and Describe some of those skills and how are then those skills transferable into the professional arena of working with teams and perhaps specifically in the, in the software and software as a service kind of challenges? Well, I'll actually refer uh, to my favorite album of all time, which is Miles Davis' Kind of Blue by most jazz experts and, and musicians. It's considered the seminal jazz album of the bebop era and some and some believe it to be one of the best albums ever recorded the funny thing is, is it's not really miles davis album on it are some of the greatest jazz musicians of all time there's like john coltrane there's cannonball adderley and Wynton kelly just to name three uh, and the whole album is really an improv it it and it epitomizes the concept of of something max dupree talked about in uh, leadership as an art which he, he talked about roving leadership mm -hmm. where at any given time, the person who has the, the, the expertise to meet the need at that moment, that's the leader. That's the person who should, should take over and, and, and really, you know, be a driving force. And Miles Davis, when he came into studio, he came in with a, a few bars of music for each song. He set up the time structure. He set up the time allotment for each musician. He said, this is the theme. But when they sat down in front and they hit the record button, most of the songs were taken in one take, some as many as two. But what happened was incredible because that team improvised those songs. If you had told me, and I know nothing about the album, that that album was basically just one big improv session, I, I wouldn't have believed it because it was so harmonious. It was so perfect. It was so in time. And yet that's what it was. So when you think about a team being able to be that cohesive, that in tune with each other, being able to feel the ebb and the flow of, of the thought process of, of the music, that applies to business with a, with a well-structured, well-honed team. There's the ebb, there's the flow, there's the, there's the working together, the bouncing ideas off each other, throwing things out there and having um, them criticized or uh, you know, refined or, or built up or, uh, or reconstructed and done so in a way that is, uh, that, that is respectful. 
And, uh, you know, that when you, when I think of kind of blue, I think that's what it's like in our innovation sessions. We get together and, and you really have an opportunity to come together, create something, deal with the ebb and the flow, find your space in there and, and, you know, really create something brand new that maybe you never thought of before. I often describe the kind of um, workshop process that I lead as a jazz play. Uh, but what you just um, described there has the, the sense and, and the essence of mutual trust and respect and openness and attunement and being present and being in the moment and being uh, prepared to transcend ego and listen to the, the collective intelligence that, that's emergent for the team, all of the above, obviously, in, in the production of, of amazing piece of music. Uh, but the point you're making, that is also the case in business. Absolutely. Absolutely is. Some of the best ideas that we've been able to build on really came from one person coming in with just a, a seed, a small idea. And then as we brought the team together, we created the environment and we, we, we sat down and we really just worked through it, worked through it together. And to your point, it's, it's absolutely amazing what can happen when you have that respect among the team and you have someone who can then drive that forward, that leadership element that says, okay, guys, let's keep, let's keep this going down the right road. What's our vision? What are the problems we're trying to solve? What was your first job? How did you know and at what point did you know that software was going to be the, the arena where you will play professionally? Well, as, as much as I love music, I wasn't a good enough musician to go pro. So I figured I'd have to come up with a plan B. <laughs> and that, uh, that plan B was uh, software. It, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting journey. I had never thought about computers really as a kid. You know, computers were a novelty. You know, the home computer really didn't exist. I'm dating myself here. Um, but my parents, my parents had a vision and uh, they insisted that I learned how to program a computer. And to be blunt, I had a little difficulty with it at first. I didn't quite get it. My dad sat me down and uh, he went through the manual and figured out how to program it. We did it together and we had, you know, a lot of fun doing it. But with his help, I was able to master it and master it quick. And within a year, I was not only developing on one computer, I was developing on large mainframes and programming in four different languages. In fact, I even had the opportunity to uh, work at the high school that I was going to, maintaining their computer system and teaching a couple of programming classes. I actually got a paycheck to go to school. Just for perspective's sake, what, what years are we talking about in, in that, that stage of, of your life? Oh, we're talking early, mid-80s. Okay, so... At that stage, it's pretty rare for youngsters that age to be uh, engaged at that level of programming, or, or do you have many people around you who are doing the same? No, I was, uh, I was uh, kind of on my own on that. There were a couple other people that uh, I knew that were also into software development, and, and usually in the classes that I was in, and we would, we would uh, collaborate together and come up with ideas. But, you know, I had, I had a lot of other interests as well. So, um, you know, Programming was, was a big part of it, but there were all those other aspects of, of social life that I, I also enjoyed. Um, but it, it really spilled right out of high school into professional work. At 19, mm -hmm. I, I was recruited to work into aerospace um, in, in a really cool and upcoming field called artificial intelligence. <laughs> so I went right from programming, you know, a mainframe to going and building, you know, you know, artificial intelligence diagnostic systems for manufacturing. And then it kind of just blew up from there. A few years later, I created my first software company by 26. I moved more into the executive management role. I was a senior vice president in the public company. Well, so a so couple of threads there to, to develop. First of all, about artificial intelligence. You've been involved in that space now for 40 years or so. Can you help me understand it at a meta level? And you may disagree with my premise here, but why is it that for 30 or even 40 years, artificial intelligence overpromised, and many will agree under-delivered. Oh, it absolutely did. Um, even at 19, I saw, you know, companies uh, like in specifically in aerospace dedicating a significant amount of money into artificial intelligence. And 
the promise was that it was going to really, again, solve all the world's ails. Uh, any technology problem that you had, AI was going to fix it. AI is like all things in technology. It's a small piece of a very big puzzle. Where AI really took off was when it had practical application in larger places. Uh, to give you a really good example of where you may not think about AI, at least not initially, is in video games. Video games really took AI to a whole new level. Um, being able to use it to create very real world, uh, not only real world environments, but real world responses from the characters that you were playing against um, that were computer based. Uh, other areas where AI, again, was just a fraction of the solution, but really added value, strong value, uh, being able to do predictive analysis, for example, in uh, things like banking or in healthcare. That's really where uh, it went from being, you know, over-promise, under-deliver to, okay, it, this has real-world application. We need to recognize where it fits. Coming back to your, your question about blockchain, blockchain is kind of in the same boat right now. And most mm -hmm. new technologies fall into that category. They come in and it's going to be the, the end-all, be-all, and everything's going to go to it. I think blockchain's great. Right now, it's being over-promised and it's under-delivering, but there are a lot of good applications for it, and we're going to see it continue to grow. I believe uh, the, the first to observe this pattern was Peter Drucker, who said that with every new technology in the first wave, we are over bullish. Uh -huh. And then in the second wave, actually, we overcorrect and we are bearish. I, of course, have experienced that in the first ever coming to lending practice because the, the first approach to lending, I produced an embarrassing overshoot. So I was halfway above the, the runway, still uh, at, I don't know, three or 400 feet, thinking that I was going to land until my instructor said to me, you've got to go around because you're never going to land this. And guess what happened in the second approach? I made an embarrassing undershoot <laughs> and really crushed us uh, ahead of the, the, the runway. So I've learned to appreciate earlier on that we have, as humans, we have that overshoot, undershoot syndrome. The, the question is whether we are approaching, do you believe that in some of those major AI applications and with what is now being talked as cognitive computing and, and other names and neural networks and, and so on, because there seems to be on number of fronts and applications the sense that we are now have arrived, perhaps have arrived now to to uh, the point of delivering or over-delivering on the, the promise. So uh, I know you're going to probably push back and, and say that the details, the, the devil is in the details and it's application-based, but coach me, educate me about how to think about that. I think you're spot on, actually. I mean, uh, you know, if you, if you look at in my business biometrics, for example, we experience the same thing as do, you know, every technology does. Um, when I met Jim Miller, our CEO, and he asked me to come on board, he showed me a vision of how biometric-based identity management would change the world and create a new future. Um, he was convincing, passionate, honest. He still is. I'm here 12 years. We're just now starting to see the wave. Uh, it's we really started to see it on the consumer side, like with the iPhone when they put a fingerprint reader in. Now we're starting to see biometrics used in a number of different ways, and in fact, artificial intelligence is part of that. Uh, if you look at uh, how AI is being used in, say, biometrics, uh, we're seeing biometrics being used uh, the behavioral side. Uh, really getting a lot of attention with artificial intelligence. The implications from a law enforcement perspective are interesting because you can use machine learning to determine potential behavioral markers or traits in someone in real time. Is this a potential perpetrator? Is he agitated, sweating, showing aggressive characteristics um, or aggressive facial expressions or concern? You know, the, you have learning engines that are able to take all this data in and build patterns around it and say, yeah, that, that, that person may be someone that you may want to stop and have a conversation with. Do you need to, in order to continue to stay ahead of the, the challenge and ahead of the, the problem, do you in your space need to be very 
closely aligned or engaged with the users to to identify and and engage them in in your own learning process that just take me through your innovation process there and how do you make sure that you indeed identify the the new emerging pain points and challenges to your solutions in our market especially around cybersecurity it's become a real issue. I, uh, I, I, saw, I recently saw an ad, actually not recently, it was about a, a year and a half ago. I saw an ad in an airport in San Jose and it showed a, a, a picture of a CEO and it said, cybersecurity issues are now CEO issues. And it's so true. I mean, I, I doubt if the CEO of Target thought he would lose his job due to a data breach that he did. There was a there was a cyber breach. It was a cybersecurity breach, and their customers' uh, data was stolen, and the board had to respond. And he wasn't. I, I doubt he was directly involved in the IT decisions. Yet, you know, the buck stopped at his desk, so to speak, and and he ended up losing his job. So, if you look at our customers' pain points, it's their reputation. You know, 60% of the businesses that suffer a data breach are out of business in six months. Wow. I mean, that's that's a remarkable number. And the average cost of a data breach is about $7 million for a small company. And by the way, people think large companies are the only ones that get, get hit. No, the vast majority are, are small to medium businesses. So our customers in our, in our market are definitely feeling pain. And it is such a hot topic. Again, you can't hardly read the news without hearing about another data breach about about people's personal information being exposed. And now there are real consequences. You know, I was uh, recently at a sales summit um, and a uh, uh, salesman from Latin America made a very powerful statement. He says, you know, in America, a CEO might lose his job over a data breach. In my country, a CEO might go to jail. The need is very clear. Finding the unique and innovative solution that's going to meet that customer need and, and do so in a way that, that is truly encompassing, that's the challenge. And then there's also the, how do you educate them? How do you do it in such a way that it is uh, cost effective? Um, and do it in a way that really provides true security, not, uh, not the kind of security that's more like, okay, I make, I made you feel better, but actually I'm, I'm providing a service that is going to make you safer. What David, is, was an experience, a seminal experience that shaped your approach to leading teams, to solving problems through and with other people? Well, I, I've been doing it quite a while. Um, boy, uh, I've been involved in commercial software for a number of years. There are so many experiences that have been turning points. I will, I will, I will give you one of the more dramatic ones, and it actually came later in my career. When I first got into the biometrics field, the biggest challenge to mass adoption was being able to scale. We talked about that early, that transactional scalability, uh, to be able to support, you know, not a million identities, but tens of millions of identities and multiple biometrics for each one. And the nature of biometric data is not something that lends itself to the modern, well-known, well-supported databases that we think of in the market. You know, I think of a database, I think of Oracle. I think of SQL Server, I think of Mongo, I think of all these commercial databases that you can either get through open source or you can license or even, even run inside the cloud as a service. Those databases don't work well with biometrics. They work really well with, with text data, dates, numbers. Um, but when it comes to binary data or what we call blobs, binary large objects, they're really not optimized for that. In fact, they really slow things down the more data that you have. Um, we had to come up with a new solution because we knew that if we were going to get into the mass market, we had to support a lot more data than those databases could really support. And that, that opened up the door to say, okay, so let's, let's take a look at maybe unique solutions that are readily available. Well, we couldn't find one that met the requirements. So we had the crazy, and I will, I will go so far as to say somewhat insane idea of creating a database from scratch. Now, I have a huge background in database. Um, I've been working with Oracle and SQL, well, Oracle since the late 80s. And with and, and I've done a lot of work with Microsoft as a solution partner. So I've, I've been back to their campus and worked with their SQL team for a number of years prior to coming to Imageware. So we took those same capabilities, those, those same techniques 
that they use in their databases, but we designed it as a real-time, high-performance, highly scalable, multimodal biometric database. It's the only one that exists. And people said we were nuts. And I could see where they were coming from. But the flip side of that is there was nothing out there to solve the customer problem. There just wasn't. So we had to innovate. It would have been so much easier if we could take uh, taken some off-the-shelf product that would meet our customer requirements, but there wasn't. And we had to put together a team. We had to define the goals and requirements. And we had to convince the team that it was a good idea because they looked at us, you know, they looked at me and went, why would we ever do that? And then you go, you walk through the problem and they're going, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. That's an interesting idea. And then the innovation started. Then once we had internal buy-in to the vision and internal buy-in to truly understanding the problem, we were able to move forward. That was one of the biggest challenges to getting this product done was actually convincing the internal stakeholders that it needed to be done because we all had our preconceived ideas. We all had our prejudices. We all had our technical experience, our, our programming experience in working with database. We all had looked at the problem and said, why would we ever do that? From, but th- from the point of defining the problem and, and creating the charter to the point of, of having a minimal viable product in the market, that, that took how long? That took, uh, well, uh, the first incarnation of the product came out within a year. Mm-hmm. Um, we've since then, you know, uh, it's then that was in 2006. By the way, in 2006, it won Frost and Sullivan's product of the year. <laughs> So it it was validated pretty quickly. Um, Since then, it powers some of the largest biometric databases in the world. Um, It's uh, it's heavily patented. Uh, We we have uh, a plethora of of, of foundational patents. In fact, they're the most cited patents in the biomet in the multi biometrics industry. Um, And again, it came from that concept of why would we do this? Okay, it meets the customer need. Do we really want to do this? Is, is there the market for this? If, it, if, if we do this, do we, first of all, do we have the skills to get there? Do we even know the skills we need to get there? We had to answer those questions. I know that you like to talk about asking questions. It's one of the things I really appreciated, uh, or appreciate when I listen to you. Are you asking the right questions? Are you really drilling down into you know, what the need is and, and how you create that vision? And we did that. And now... We have the only product in the world like it. There isn't anyone else that does what we do, not the way that we do it. And they certainly don't have the intellectual property behind it. What are the next frontiers in your space and even in the, the, the broader space that, that you are playing in, in terms of AI? What are, what are the next problems, the next horizons that will be solved and addressed in the next five to seven years? The problem space is rapidly evolving. As, as we talked about earlier, cybersecurity is, is a business that uh, moves at warp speed. I, I, I'm reminded of Moore's law when it comes to hardware about how everything doubles after a period of time in capability. Well, and when it comes to need in cybersecurity, Moore's law is completely blown out. We're, we're, we're having to stay on top of things that, you know, that are coming up rapidly. So five, seven years from now, we're not going to be using the same computers or the same devices that we use today. In fact, I would venture to say that the phone that, you know, is in your pocket right now that we use every single day won't leave home without, it, you know, powers the podcasts and the music in our cars. It, it, we use it for, to answer our emails when we're, we're on the road. First thing I pick up when I get up, that's not going to be anywhere near the same five years from now. It's going to be completely different. And there's going to be completely different ways to interact with it, completely different ways to uh, manipulate data on it. We're going to see an evolution in the, in the way that we interact with data. And that data is going to be in, in numerous places. It's going to be in our internal networks. It's going to be in the cloud. There are going to be places that we haven't thought of yet where that data is going to exist. And we're going to have to authenticate who we are to be able to access it. You know, pins and passwords have failed. They're, they're horrible. I, I anecdotally tell the story that in, you know, uh, I think it was uh, 430 BC, uh, the, the Greek army, there was the first uh, documented use of a password by the Greek army and it got compromised and they got slaughtered. 
here we are a couple thousand years later, we haven't learned anything. We're still using the same technology to secure our bank accounts, to secure our healthcare records. And we see where that's gotten us. So, you know, if you look at, you know, even the next several years, you're going to see much more biometric authentication. And you're going to see things like passive and constant authentication. We're already seeing, for example, banks, when you log onto their website, will track how you use that website and they will create a, a profile around your uh, behavior on interacting with that website. And if and as that profile grows, if you engage in an activity that doesn't meet the profile, it flags it and it, it will continue to flag it for each warning that it, it, it sees. And it does this all in the background. It does it passively. And then if it gets enough and it goes, hey, something's wrong here, it will initiate a strong authentication, which is what we do. We do strong authentication. We'll send an alert directly to your mobile device and say, hey, are you, are you logged into your website right now? No? Okay. Disconnect that user. Are you trying to log into the network? No. Okay. Don't allow them through. Or yes. Okay. Let's prove it's you. Let's take a picture of your face. Let's capture your voice. Let's uh, capture your fingerprint or your handprint. And authenticate who you are to make sure that you are, uh, you're allowed to have access. I suppose somebody would, would offer that humorously, the system will identify when you have identity crisis, when, when you're upset and, you, and you're behaving out of character, it will flag you too and, and uh, reorient you back to be yourself. You're not wrong. Um, behavior, <laughs> behavioral analytics and machine learning are two fields that are, are rapidly growing. I mean, you know, one of the, one of the most uh, rapidly growing uh, segments for employment is data scientists. Yes. Okay. There's a reason for that. A lot of it comes down to uh, being able to analyze data just like that, finding those trends, being able to create those profiles and steer uh, someone or an event or, you know, a transaction in the right direction if it's getting off track based on that analysis. If you were again today in your mid-20s and trying to find your way in the world, how would you approach this conundrum with what you know today? What would you do different? Where would you uh, direct your, your efforts? Well, I happen to have a son in his 20s, uh, and I will give the same advice I give to him. There, there are two things. First of all, do what you love. He, like me as a musician, he's infinitely more talented than I am, and he's uh, pursuing it as a career. And he absolutely loves it. And he's doing well because of it. When you have the love for what you do, when you have the passion, that's where innovation comes from. It comes from passion. It also comes from the ability to take that passion and set aside all your preconceived notions and accept the implausible as possibly being doable and explore it. The second is, I would say, no matter what you do, no matter what career you pursue, good skills when it comes to working with and understanding and empathizing with others, you know, the, the classic people skills. If you have the ability to truly interact positively with someone, to listen to their ideas, to share your own ideas and to build on that, it doesn't matter what it is you're doing. It could be music, it could be software, it could be building a house, it could be designing a building. It doesn't matter. That teamwork, that collaborative spirit, that passion that, that multiple people can share together. That's something that is, uh, while it, it can be inherent, many times it's learned. And that's something that we all need to learn and exercise. Find your passion to possibly the, the point of surrender where the impossible become possible and doable, number Absolutely. one. And number two, develop the skill with people, the, the sociability, the, the ability to facilitate and bring the best in other people. And somewhere in the convergence of, of those two things, you will find your path forward. I couldn't agree more. David, this was a rich exploration with you today as we bring this to landing over and above what you already just offered, which is extraordinarily rich. Any other parting wisdom to people listening to create new futures that you'd like to offer? I always try to remember that as, as leaders, it's up to us to work together with our teams to understand the goals, understand and define the vision 
and adapt because things will change. The landscape will be altered. And being able to adapt is absolutely key to being able to consistently execute. As I said before, we, you know, people skills are something you have to constantly work at improving. We have to work at our communication, our understanding. And, and the word I like to use a lot is empathy. We must work to not only understand our peers, our subordinates, our superiors, and our customers. We have to be able to empathize with them. And empathy, by definition, is feeling what another is feeling, not just understanding it. And, and it, sometimes I'm good at that. Sometimes I'm not. But I try to keep in mind that another's intentions are not any less pure than my own. So to try and really see it through their eyes. As, the, as they used to say, you know, you know, walk a mile in their shoes. That's different than just understanding where they're coming from. That's you, need, you need to feel where they're coming from. And, that, and, and if you do that, you have thoughtful communication. You can figure out what it's going to make for, for you both to collaborate together and innovate. And, and as you say, create new futures. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure, as always. Here we are. We've landed this Create New Futures journey, and it's your time to take action, to create your new future. Here are a few steps you can take this week. First, find what fills you with energy and passion to the point where the impossible becomes doable. Life is precious, and your gifts are unique. And you therefore have an obligation to discover how to bring forward those gifts and your passion. Second, lead by connecting with people and by empathizing with them. As David suggested, never stop learning, developing, and growing in your ability to bring people together. By convening talented people around you, you create new opportunities and open new futures for them and for you. Third. Learn to adapt and create innovative environments around you. Innovation, as David suggested, involves roving and distributed leadership, where people get to lead by know-how, by passion, by merit of ideas, and by the readiness to take risks and come up with solutions, creative and innovative solutions. We are here on this earth to contribute. to create innovative solutions, to make this world a little better because we are here today. Discover how you can contribute and transform your environment and you will live an even happier and more fulfilling life. One more thing, you can reach me directly by phone and on email to explore how we can help you and your team create your new future. See you next time. Thank you for listening. Aviv always encourages his clients to identify the one or two ideas they can move forward into action immediately. What will you capture and apply today? You can always begin with a small action and then build momentum over time. When you move forward from an idea to action, you get immediate ROI, return on the time you invested, and return of learning. And then the learning cycle builds the success propulsion. One more thing. You can reach Aviv directly by phone and email to discover how he can help you create a new future for your business and organization. Creating your new future can begin today.